Hey, you up all night tossing, turning, mind racing? Can't fall asleep? Well, I think you're in the right place. Because Sleep With Me is proud to present Game of Drones. The Game of Thrones podcast that puts you to sleep. We do it with an episode discussion. All you need to do is get in bed, turn out the lights, and press play. I'll do the rest. Podcasts are going to create a safe place where you can put aside everything running through your brain and drift off into dreamland. And the way it works, whether you are a big fan of Game of Thrones or not, is I'm going to go through Season 4, Episode 2 of Game of Thrones, The Line and the Rose. And I'm going to talk about all the stuff you didn't see in the episode and that other podcasts didn't talk about, the boring stuff. And with each segment... The topics are going to get more and more boring, and soon you'll find yourself drifting off into dreamland. Whether you're in love with Cersei, in love with Jamie, or you dislike them, or you don't even know who they are, the goal of this podcast is to help you fall asleep. And I'm going to talk about Game of Thrones because I love Game of Thrones, and I love season four of Game of Thrones. But there's also a lot in there that interests me, and stuff that interests me bores other people to sleep. If this is your first time listening to a Sleep With Me podcast, that's all we do here. It's a podcast to put you to sleep. Now, it works for a lot of people. It might not work for you. All you need to do is give it a try and see if it works. If it works for you, great. And the reason it works for so many people, it's not because I'm hypnotizing you or prescribing anything to you or giving you any kind of advice. It's because once upon a time, I was hit by a lightning bolt. Or bit by a spider or something, I don't remember. But instead of giving me these great superpowers to walk on walls or to be as strong as the hound or the mountain or as smooth as Oberon, Marta, Oberon, 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 Marta, to be as smooth as Prince Oberon, I, I, I got a power of boredom. And that's what I'm here to use it for, to help you fall asleep. Now, you can find our podcast on the web at www.sleepwithmepodcast.com or on iTunes. Game of Drones will be on iTunes or at www.sleepwithmepodcast.com slash drones. D-R-O-N-E-S, I believe. If you have any feedback, feedback at sleepwithmepodcast.com. On Twitter, at Dearest Scooter. If you have a chance to review and rate us on iTunes, that'd be great. It's going to help other people that want to be bored to sleep to find us organically. Somehow through some sort of uh, magic. I believe it's magic. It might be math. The magic of math, I guess, of bits and zeros. If you review us on iTunes and rate us, it helps uh, make us more discoverable, I think is the buzzword. And I want to say thank you to three people that took the time to review and rate us on iTunes. And that is, I want to say hi to Amy or Ami S. in the U.S. of A., who it took five days for her to finish one episode. That's great. I hope all five nights you fell asleep. I think you did. So I'm glad I worked for you, Amy or Ami. We also have Rosinte, I believe. Rosinte. You guys know I can't pronounce words. Rosinte. From Denmark. Cheese put so good in a very, um, well, it wasn't just my projection. It kind of was like, 
uh, made my heart pitter-patter, if you catch my drift, so good. Uh, as opposed to that person last week that tricked me with their name, a sphincter, I think was their name. Also want to say thank you to Michaela or Michaela. And another good Michaela put, oddly enough, this works, question mark. And uh, I just thought that was funny because obviously if this is your first time here or your second time here, you might think, what the heck? Wait, you're kidding me. I've, I w- went, saw this, I saw I had Game of Thrones content, and I went, when are you going to get to the Game of Thrones content? I'm a Game of Thrones fan. Yeah, we're not going to get to anything interesting. So just uh, slow your horses, uh, Padraig. We are going to bore you to sleep. And that's what these people are writing reviews about. Or Michaela was so surprised because there's, I mean, I'm not, I, I, I'm, again, I'm not, I'm not here to try to become your sleep coach or become any kind of advisor or sell you any crap. I'm just a boring dude. And that's how this podcast works. So you can relax. I'm not going to, I mean, there is some trickery, but it's, um, once I get into about 22 minutes, Carla, I think in Portugal, called me out. She, I'm doing some sort of hypnotic um, mind programming to build my army of doom. But that's not going to be for like five or six years. So I'm here to bore you to sleep till then, till I need you. So, yeah, there's really no downside. I'm nuts. I got many problems. This is one of them. It's an outlet for my insanity. And I don't think I need to go on anymore. I'll probably delete some of this anyway. Let's get on to Game Drones. All right, so we're talking about The Lion and the Rose, Season 4 of Game of Thrones, Episode 2. Now, spoiler alert, there might be spoilers in here. If you haven't seen it, listen at your own peril. This episode had a lot to talk about. A lot of interesting stuff happened. Um, I'm going to put it out on a limb that predicting the future this will be one of those episodes, and I think it's referred to as an as a wedding episode, unofficially. It's going to be one of those episodes of television that's remembered for a very long time. And I'm not saying this. This isn't a boring part. This is a. It's true. I mean, I, this was the episode that sealed the deal for me. That this Game of Thrones is just off the chart, and particularly the wedding, um, and the acting. But this had everything. This episode was great. Now, what are we going to talk about tonight? We're, tonight, we're going to cover uh, printing press, pre-printing press books a little bit. And the, you know, just cover a little bit of that. We talk about a little bit about Stannis Baratheon. And uh, we're going to talk about the names of the swords that got shouted out to Joff, probably before Stannis. We're going to talk about the gods of the Game of Thrones and what the hell is up with those trees with the faces. Because, you know, I don't, I don't do a lot. I read the first book and a half, or maybe the first two books. So I, I don't know a lot about the gods of Game of Thrones. So I was like, what is it? You know, what's up, old gods, the new gods? You got that red woman and her gods. So we're going to talk about the gods of Game of Thrones a little bit. And then we're going to talk about Joffrey, of course. And I'm going to do a little armchair psychology, psychiatry, whatever. Sociopathy, psychopathy, bullying. What's up with Joff, man? Joffrey. King Joffrey. And then we're going to close out with, I said earlier that, you know, they're going to be talking about this wedding and just the acting. And I'm sure that the Game of Thrones podcast, legitimate, non-boring Game of Thrones podcast are talking about 
you know, the, who the camera was focused on at the wedding and the, and the tension and the fine, fine, fine acting at this wedding. Wow. I, I could, uh, uh, I could rewatch the wedding. I mean, it's painful, but it, it, it whew, I don't, I don't, I can't, I'm at a loss for words because there's nothing boring to say about it. It was great, great, great television, great visual. There's audio. I mean, there was all, I couldn't, the only thing they didn't have is smell vision. I mean, that would have been the time to have it, I guess. And just a tour de force of a lot of actors and actresses on the show. Just great lines, great writing, great everything. So a tip, a doff, if I had a cap, I would be doffing it to George R. R. Martin, Weiss and Benioff, and the entire... Every single person that worked on that Game of Thrones show on HBO. But we're, we're not here to... So that's... All right, non-boring stuff out of the way. Let's get down and let's get dirty. And let's talk about some boring stuff. All right, so first thing up, we're going to talk about pre-printing press books. You know, you're the whole Gutenberg printing press. I'm not even getting into the debate of who invented printing presses and movable type because I'm not smart enough to get into that debate. What I was curious about is, like, so we got these books coming in to Game of Thrones. And I guess I haven't done a Game of Thrones podcast before this, so I wasn't really keeping track. But you have the the history, the history of the Kingsguard, the book guide. And it probably has a proper title that I'm butchering, but that the Kingslayer has to deal with his entry in there. It seems to be weighing heavily on Jamie. It seems to be a little bit of theme and then you also have Stannis Baratheon's daughter teaching Sir Davos to read. Again, very beautiful books. And, be, I mean, Sir Davos, whew, I mean, again, fine actor alert. That guy is killing it. And we'll get to Sir Davos in the next episode. Oath, oh, no, Oath Keeper's the fourth. We'll get to Sir Davos. But So there's books there. And then there's this book that Tyrion gives to Joffrey at, like, the wedding, what do you call it, the rehearsal brunch, I guess is what, I guess in, in Game of Thrones you must have the wedding rehearsal early in the morning, and you have a brunch, or you have a brunch and then you have the wedding, something. And that's when they give out the gifts or, or some, some, some such. So Tyrion gives this history book, fine, rare history book to Joff, and Joff, of course, chops it in half. But it's like, um... Got me thinking, like, how much does a book like that, what does a book like that run, Tyrion, you know? How, how many uh, shillings is he busting out for that? Because it can't be cheap. And and that's where I started my research, like, how much would books cost back then? Turns out it's not easy for me to find out. I, I, I uh, looked into, like, how much you would pay for a pre-Gutenberg Bible. Couldn't get a straight answer. I mean, anywhere in today's dollars. It was all over the place, 16,000, 30,000, hundreds of thousands of dollars. I couldn't get a, get a straight – surely can't be cheap, and books were more rare. But why don't we talk a little bit more in detail? So I got some of this stuff from uh, the University of Texas, uh, hrc.utexas.edu. It'll be in the show notes. It talks about how in the Middle Ages, after the fall of the Roman Empire to the Visia Goths, around the 5th century, the cultural and intellectual life of Europe took refuge, according to this, in the uh, in the monasteries. 
talks about continuous warfare, poor crops, abnormally cold temperatures, plunged Europe into the Dark Ages. And I said that, you know, most of the books from the Romans and the Greeks, classical texts, they were lost during this time. And the only places that preserved them were some of these uh, scriptoria in the European monasteries and then in the uh, the Byzantine and Muslim empires had some libraries that survived. And we talk about illustrated books. The earliest illustrated books were created by the uh, ancient Egyptians. And a notable example is the Book of the Dead, which was a book you wouldn't leave, read when you were alive. It was to help the deceased navigate the afterlife. I'd love to get my hands on a copy of that because uh, I'm obsessed with the uh, afterlife a little bit. It talks about that there's some Roman codexes, which were uh, from the 4th or 5th century, but it was at this point that it was during the medieval time, middle medieval period that books came to be illuminated, where they were like enlightened, illuminated by the addition of gold paint or gold flakes, vivid, col- vivid colors, and ornamental letters. And large monasteries had these rooms called scriptoria, where monks would copy manuscripts, copy books by hand. And the scribes in the scriptorium, they weren't allowed to talk, they weren't allowed to correct their mistakes, or they weren't allowed to correct other people's mistakes, something like that. And this uh, thing from University of Texas says, some of these guys, you know, they're copying these books, these they were the keepers of knowledge. They might have even been illiterate. They might not have been able to read. It was like almost like they were artists copying pictures or paintings. And I guess the subjects of the books decided how illuminated they were going to be, like how much ornamentation and gold and lettering was going to be added. So a Bible for a church would be, for church services, would be totally done up, really nice, really fancy. But one they were going to use around your house would be a little bit more plain or maybe a lot more plain. This is interesting. Up until the ninth century, there was no divisions between the words in uh, Greek or Latin manuscripts. All the words just ran together with no spaces. So you'd have to figure out it to be like, um, hello, are you? And it wasn't like that altogether. Like one run-on word, I guess. And when they were done with the books, they'd be checked for scribal errors only and then corrected. And then the rubric, 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 Rubricator, rubricator, rubricator would add the titles, the capitals, and the paragraph marks. The rubricator, rubric, rubricator. I have to say rubric first. I have many difficulties speaking. And that comes from the Latin word red rubric, which was uh, where they put the big first big letter would be red a lot of times. So you'd be like, you know, hey, this is important, this big L. Check it out. And then the illuminator would add all the uh, extra gold paint and crap. So yeah, that's uh, a little bit about books. I'm sure a lot of, I don't know if they have monasteries in Game of Thrones, but I'm sure a lot of people put a lot of hard work into that book that Joff just ended up chopping in half. And I'm sure Tyrion put out a lot of money. Hopefully this is, I mean, he seems like he's had some coins, some physical coins. So hopefully it's cash on hand and not money from he's going to owe the uh, Iron Bank of Bravos because that would be trouble. Next up, I just want to talk about then Joffrey has this sword which he got uh, from his dad, Tywin, who had used Sansa's dad's sword. 
Ned Stark. And he uh, melted it down, gave one to Jamie and one to Joffrey. And then, you know, Joffrey's like, oh, sword should have a name. And then everyone's shouting stuff out. And I guess they shouted out Widow's Whale, which is the one he kept. Which, well, let's get one wait. Wolfsbane, Terminus, and uh, what's the other one? And Stormbringer. Now, Wolfsbane, if it was Wolfsbane, B-A-N-E, but if it was Wolfsbane, B-A-I-N, doesn't that... I guess I'm not a, I'd say like the bane of a wolf. That would be the best. But if it's like wolf's bane, like a poison or stuff they use in potions, probably not the best name. Widow's a whale. Dumb name. I mean, go go with Joff to think. I mean, his, if, I mean, I guess it'd be, it'd be better off like daughter's whale. Because, I mean, if you really wanted to rub it into Sansa and the fact that Caitlin Stark's not even alive anymore. It's like dumb. And uh, then someone said Terminus, and there's a debate. Terminus, Wolfsbane, and Stormbringer might be George R. R. Martin's tip of the cap to other um, authors, sci-fi authors, and maybe to um, The Walking Dead. Maybe it's HBO, Weiss and Benioff's tip of the cap to The Walking Dead. I don't know. But I do know if I was there, well, I'd, be, I'd, be, I'd be already beheaded. But I'll be, you know, I'm going to get into, try not to swear too much, but I guess Wolfsbane would probably be the best one, but yeah, you know, Asshole Sword would be probably one, you know, I don't know. Sure, if if you're a big Twitter user, maybe you could tweet me a name with like Joff's Sword as the, the, uh, what do you call that thing, the hash mark, hashtag Joff's Sword, and, and think of some. Because I can think of some really mean stuff, but I don't want to start swearing, like, and get all crazy. But Widow's Whale, give me a break, Joffrey. Quick, uh, next thing we want to talk about, I want to talk about real quick, Stannis Sprathian. This guy is an enigma to me, man. He, uh, we, we learned a little bit about him, that uh, everything we learned about him this episode was kind of unexpected and nice. A nice, a nice, and a, uh, I don't know, like just made him more interesting. And actually, before this, I don't know if I, how interested I was in him. I just saw him as this man under this spell of this red, red woman. I don't know if that what they call her. She's naked half the time, but uh, whatever. She got red hair, I guess. But uh, you know, a couple, couple of interesting things. First of all. What a romantic man. Stannis is making book soup when him and his wife were starving during, a, I think, a previous siege. I don't know which war that was from, but they, he was, first of all, crafty enough to boil down the books because they had, uh, the glue was made from horses. And you probably have some leather on there, too, that you could probably eat. So nothing like a little book soup to make a, give, I'm sure give, it's better than burning books. I mean, he's, Stannis is burning his his extended family, but he's not burning books. He was cooking books, cooking, I guess, cooking the books in a different way than a crooked accountant would. But it'd be interesting, like a recipe for book soup when you don't have anything other than, if you're down to eating books, you're in pretty, pretty bad shape. But then he even goes a little more romantic and, and she talks about how he caught her seagull and they shared the seagull, his wife. I'm talking about Mrs. Baratheon, the lunatic, um, 
So that was a, you know, oh. And then, and this is just a throwaway thing that, you know, I caught, is that Stannis isn't into corporal punishment. He doesn't want anybody hitting his wife or the red woman, anybody hitting his daughter. He's very protective of his daughter. And I just thought that was a nice touch by whoever, Martin, Weiss and Benioff, whoever. Just a nice little... My dog is being beaten by Stannis Baratheon, I think. Pardon me. Or she agrees with it. But it's just a nice touch that Stannis... I don't know, that's just something... And not only... Just said something about him. He's such a hard ass. But he's like, you're not going to go up there and hit my daughter. No, Nobody hits my daughter. I mean, I don't know what he said. I'm paraphrasing. So, a couple little things about Stannis that were in that episode that I really liked. And they're kind of boring. I mean, book soup. I could talk about, I mean, what do you prefer, fiction or nonfiction, my dear? And, and like, when you're going to, like, you're going through your library for book soup. Like, we have probably going with the biggest, biggest, if you're Stannis, you're picking the ones with the biggest pages, probably have the most glue. But then you're like, I'm going to need that book later. Are you saving? Does the ink come off? Is the ink toxic? You know, how are you? Is the leather covers? A lot of questions. But yeah, of course, what would you add to your book soup? I know there's Stone Soup. It's a popular book about these two tricksters out in the country with a giant pot and uh, nothing to eat. But Stannis, he wasn't tricking anybody. He was like, my wife's hungry. I'm hungry. Uh, we're going get, to get some horse broth. That's basically the uh, result of book soup is horse broth or maybe a little bit of well, I guess the less you think about book soup, the better. So let's uh, keep moving on. Okay, call me uh, ignorant, because I am, but... Uh, so call me ignorant, but because I am, but I didn't really know a lot about the gods of Westeros. Maybe because I'm not paying close enough attention, but it you know, got me thinking something about this episode. I think the Red Woman says something about, you know, that the hell is here and now. According to her god. But you got these trees with the faces that the uh, northerners are into. And then, like, I mean, you look at Tywin, you're like, what does he believe? Is he a hardcore? He's into the new god. So it made me want to research for you guys. I figure, you know, we get some boring stuff. I mean, no offense, uh, holy rollers, but religion can, I mean, when it's not contra, like, I guess religion, yeah. Religion kind of skates one of those things that's either. Highly controversial or totally boring. Can't be, it's hard to find a middle ground. But when it's fictional religion, hey, isn't that something we can all laugh at and be bored by without any controversy? So let's dive into it. I found all of this over at uh, A-W-O-I-A-F, Westeros.org. I think that probably stands for something. but uh, And I'll put it in the show notes because I don't know what it stands for. So we got the old gods, according to A-W-I-O-F. They're tied to the earth. The gods of the forest, mountains, and the streams. Nice. They're nameless deities, and they were worshipped by the northern population of Westeros. They're symbolized by these weirwood trees. They're the oldest religion in Westeros, and they were worshipped by the magical children of the forest before the humans came. And uh, it was adopted by the first men. Uh, first persons, folks, were in the, uh, not the first men. Uh, but yeah, children of the forest. 
Interesting to know more about these children of the forest. So they, so it's a children's based religion. I mean, it's like uh, the gods of the forest. You'd think if children were coming up with religion, it'd be more not fact based, but grounded in more reality. I guess that's why I have more of a nature religion. But you think like, is there like, like, I mean, we put kids today. Cookie, you wouldn't want Cookie Monster as your god, and that's like well, always one of these theories about the future and the if we wipe ourselves out and then some alien civilization finds us. I mean, they'd be digging through a lot of stuff. We'd be like, man, these people have like one billion different gods they worship. But you know, the Cookie Monster would be like a I don't know. We don't need to get too too off topic. So that's well, we'll get into these weirwood trees in a minute. So, Second relation, religion is the faith of the seven. That's the dominant religion in the seven kingdoms. It's built around the symbology of the number seven. It's seven facets of one God. And that's closely tied to the Christianity of the Middle Ages. And it says when the uh, Andals came to Westeros and ended the kingdom of the first men, they brought the faith of seven with them, the new gods, or simply the faith. And they believe in like the... Uh, We've heard him chant it. I should have brought. I think I have it written down somewhere. We'll probably cover it next episode. Well, yeah, let's talk about the uh, their seven gods next episode. So we'll get into more of the new gods. Uh, then you have this is this is my favorite god, um, the drowned god, and the stormed god, and those are the gods of the ironborn. And the drowned god is a high, harsh deity, uh, and the religion's a harsh one. If you live in the Iron Islands. That's harshness goes hand in hand with being ironborn. Uh, that God favors uh, reaving. I'm not sure what reaving is. Probably not good though, because pl- and plundering, in its in its name, and it says that children are initiated in faith by being drowned and then brought back to life, or resuscitated. So that's a great God, drowned God, and they say, uh, "What is dead may never die." I like that. Then you got Rolor, who's the Lord of Light. And that's a faith from Essos. Red Lady's in charge of that one. It's little known in Westeros. It's gaining support right now. And if you don't like it, you might get a, you know, this red woman. She's a bit of a zealot. And holds a very black and white view of the world. Uh, With Rolor being the one true god. And the rest being demons that need to be destroyed. So that's that's no good. You know what? I mean, if, you, if it's like uh, if I had to choose between the drowned god and Rolor, who would I choose? I mean, that'd be a tough one, huh? So, and there's one more religion here. It's, uh, oh wait, there's two more. There's Mother Rion, who's worshipped by the uh, remnants of the Rionar who live along the river Greenblood and Dorne. So I don't know if uh, our buddy uh, Oberon, Oberon practices that or not, but that's one thing. And they have the Lady of the Waves and the Lord of the Skies. They were worshipped on the three sisters prior to the seven. So that's the uh, gods of uh, Westeros. And then what's up with these weirwood trees? That's what they're called, these white trees with the faces. They're called weirwood trees. They're a deciduous tree, which I believe means their leaves fall off. And they're found all over Westeros. 
They have five pointed leaves. This is again from the AWOIAF website. Five pointed leaves. The sap is blood red. And it has this smooth white bark, wide trunks. I know, I guess it's just a smooth bark. The, the, the wood is white. And most of them have faces carved into their bark. That's my question. Are the faces carved in? Because that makes sense. But if they're natural, that's freaky. That would be freaky. Carved faces, I mean, not so freaky. Trees with faces, that's no good. Uh, according, to the, according to this, they were carved by the children of the forest. Maybe that adds a little freakiness to it. Do the children of the forest talk to the trees? Do the trees give them candy? That would be my first question as a future child of the forest. When's the candy coming? Is that, is that sap sweet? Can I put it on pancakes? Even though it's blood red? Could be. I mean, God knows how much uh, maple syrup costs these days. A little more about these weirwoods. They're sacred to the followers of the old gods. The green seers of the children of the forest can see through the eyes of the trees. That could be handy. Since the trees have no sense of time, they can look into the past or the present. Doesn't say the future, though, because that hasn't happened yet. The weirwoods grow in the wild, but the first men, when they took up this faith of the old gods, they created God's woods in their castles and villages with a weirwood. And that was known as the heart tree, so that they could worship their gods. Pretty cool to... Go to a forest or a grove of trees in a church. No offense. But uh, unless it's raining or cold or snowy or hot. And then you church, church is better. Maybe. Now when the Andals came in the Faith of the Seven, the Weirwoods, you know, some of them were chopped down by these Andal-type dudes. Most of the stuff in the south was gone. Except for in the Isle of the Faces, where the... Uh, Children of the forest and the first men agreed to peace. Now, the Andals, they never conquered the north, so the old face remains strong there, according to this website. You might think, um, what about this wood? What, you know, I'm a plunderer. I worship the drowned god. I want these trees for the wood. Screw the religion. Is the wood any good? I'll tell you what, plunderer. If you, do, if you know what reaving means, let me know. But, yeah. The uh, wood of the weirwood is excellent, but it's expensive, obviously, because depending on what you believe, you could be sentenced to hell, possibly. And, I mean, shot your hand, I mean, probably, so it doesn't rot, of course, because it's a religious wood. Good for making bows, spears, arrows, good bows. I say some of these uh, people beyond the wall have horn and weirwood bows. Same with the children of the forest. Weirwood can be used to make furniture. Now, I wouldn't go to any asshole's house that has weirwood furniture, you know, because that's like a sign. I'm not I'm not a practicing member of the old gods, but, uh, I mean, I guess Joffrey probably would have some weirwood furniture. Oh, yeah. I mean, you can see if you, like, uh, recovered it, like if a weirwood tree died. Okay, yeah, I should get off my high horse. Sure, I can accept your weirwood furniture. Yeah, it says here that's a, it's used. So weirwoods, the uh, freaky white tree with the face in it. If you're ever wondering, it's part of. If you want to practice the old gods, go to a 
I wouldn't mind praying in front of a weirwood tree, actually. I know you can buy, like, things to stick and make a face on a tree nowadays. You really can't carve it. Probably not a good idea. There's probably, like, fungus or bugs that could get in there. But, yeah, my biggest question would be, what's the sap taste like? Can we make a non-damaging tree fort in there without having to worry about the children of the forest coming and getting us and not knocking us out of the tree? I don't know. What other weirwood tree questions I would have, but... Like, if you try to sleep under a weirwood tree, is it too bright? And then do you have to worry, can you sense these guys watching you? Because that would make it hard to sleep. So, yeah. Okay, let's move on. So, I'm going to, I think we're uh, going a bit over on time here, but I wanted to talk about Joffrey. Like, is he a sociopath, a psychopath, or what? And I did some research because I was like, oh, you know, and those are like uh, terms that get overused, you know, like, oh, he's a sociopath or he's a psychopath. So I did some, I did, I did some research. I, I want to just talk about it real quick. So, so over at knowledgenuts.com, knowledgenuts.com, those are people that are nuts about knowledge, I think. Found a little article about, by uh, Deborah Kelly, talks about. It's about called the differences between psychopaths and sociopaths. What I found like what was interesting was what do they have in common? And they both lack a moral compass. Does Joff lack a moral compass? Yes. So check. They're incapable of feeling, sympathizing with the feelings of others. Check. Lack the set of ethics that tend to keep society from dissolving into a chaotic mess. Check. They also have a non-existent or paired. Impaired sense of disgust. Check. So that's from Knowledge Nuts. And then we'll go over to uh, Forensic Focus over on the uh, Psych Central blogs. And this is by Kelly McLean. McClear. Kelly, this is by Kelly McClear, Side D. And she talks about the causes and that normally, let me, let me see if I can get it here. That psychopathy is an innate phenomenon, where psychopath sociopathy, which is similar, is a result of environmental factors. So a psychopath is born that way, maybe from some genetic problems or some some more some more something, and a sociopath is is created like the nature versus nurture, and they talk about the differences that sociopaths are probably less dangerous and less likely to hurt their families and stuff. So it's like, so is Joff, he's probably not a sociopath because he's very mean to his family, even to his, he must know that Jamie's his father, maybe, I don't know. Uh, so, but it's like, then I was like, wow, this is like one of these debates we don't even need to have because that's how good Game of Thrones is. He's he's neither or both or all those things that, is it is it a cause that his mother and his father are brother and sister that caused him to be this way? Or is that he's raised in this crazy household? And, I mean, God knows the genes. I mean, good-looking genes this family has. But, I mean, Taiwan's not exactly a, a loving grandpappy, you know, having and, you know, nurturing anybody. So this is where I think Game of Thrones says, oh, you know what, he's more than... You know, he's more than just a psychopath or a sociopath, but he's definitely a bully and a jerk, for sure. 
Um, I found this thing over at uh, kickbully.com. It talks about uh, the bully as a master manipulator. I just thought this would be boring. And I, I thought it would be boring, but I, I don't know if we actually have time. You guys will probably be asleep. And maybe at the end of the episode, I'll, I'll read through some of this because it's real boring. Okay? But yeah, is Joff a sociopath, a psychopath, a bully? Or is he none or all? I don't know. That this is where the word nuance comes in and real character and like a, maybe a nosy. Like people are so afraid of the Lannisters, or most people are, that, I mean, Ole, Oleana, how do you say her name? Oleana, whatever. I mean, obviously Big Mama Tyrell's got some stuff to say about it, but for the most part, no one's like, what the hell's wrong with your kid, man, or your grandkid? I guess, you know, but he's the king. That's what, that's what makes these tale. I don't know. Wow. Joff's just bad guy. Bad guy. But, okay, so the capstone of this Game of Drones episode, but also the episode itself was the wedding. And, of course, the wedding ended with... Uh, Spoiler alert. Let me give you a second to pause or fast. I guess you'd fast forward. Well, there's no way with Joff's death. So so the main focus of this episode was the wedding and how the wedding ended. But also what was important to me or what I was most interested in about this episode was that this was like the height of Joffrey's accomplishments as king. And it showed us this side of Joffrey that we've never seen before. And, I mean, the cruel, mean, petty, passive-aggressive, powerless rage, all that stuff. We've seen it before with Joffrey. And this was just like this, his ultimate, uh, the culmination of his evil. I don't even think he's evil. He's just a, a jerk. But now put our, let's put those feelings, let's take those feelings, we'll put them on the back burner. We're going to turn it down to... Uh, just below simmer, okay? And they're there. They're legitimate. But let's put them, put them out of our mind. Because Joffrey, this is probably, if, if you were to take a second and have um, a conversation with him before his wedding, like let's say, let's say he actually did have a best friend. Maybe it was a teddy bear. We know that he, he's not nice to his brother's cat. Let's say you were, okay, well, let's just do this. Joffrey got a lot done for this episode and surprised everybody. And I think even in a sick way, you saw this pride on his mother's face. And I'm talking about this show he put on that was vile in its disregard to his uncle Tyrion and to Sansa and the guy, Lord of Flowers, I forgot his name. It's almost everyone involved in this wedding. But it's like he he somehow did this on his own, and that's what I was curious about. So let me tell you how I imagine it went down. It's like, let's take a like a trip down. Let's hop in my Game of Thrones imagination machine. Can you? Would you like to climb aboard inside my uh, Game of Thrones imagination machine? I'm going to fire it up. Bruce Bolton, I rue you. That's how it starts up. And then I go, beep, boop, 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 Bruce Bolton's a jerk. And we're back before the wedding. And we're following Joffrey as he walks down a hall. 
to his grandfather's office. They have a conversation we can't quite hear. Tyrion looks stern, and Joff stomps his feet, points outside, starts yelling. Tywin, I think I might have called him Tyrion earlier, is unfazed, and he nods, crosses his arms. And Joff just puts out his hands, and Tywin digs into one of those like boxes on his desk and hands him a bag of gold. Joff goes off and goes back down to this private uh, ante-room he hangs out in when he's not in his room, his bedroom. And he calls this nurse mother that uh, has been with him since he was a lad. She doesn't, she doesn't even make it on the show because she's kind of boring. But she runs, like, makes sure his sheets are changed, cleans up. She knows about all the dark stuff that he's into. But he calls, he tells her... Uh, but he tells her he's got a secret plan for his wedding and that she'll help him as his wedding gift. And he sends her out with this money and she's supposed to find someone. She brings back this woman who comes, this stern, stern-looking woman, young woman, youngish, 35, 40. Uh, she shows up a couple of days later. Joff's just been pacing around the sand room. He's got piles of drawings and notes and he talks to this woman. We still can't quite hear what he's saying, but we can see Joffrey's making things, the giant lion's head. And then he's doing, you know, doing these dances and spins. And the woman's like, okay, okay. And he's jumping around and then he's doing stuff. And then she's clapping. And then a couple of days later, we go to the room and we see uh, she's taking kids from Flea Bottom, I think is the neighborhood. And she's must have like paid him a, I don't know, like a a hay penny or something. And they're running around, and Jeff's like being mean to them, but he's also kind of commanding them. And the kids are play fighting, and we start to see the show. We also see this look in Jeff's eyes. It's like he's an evil choreographer, dance instructor, music, musical maker. Like you can see, unfortunately, like the creative part of him is just swimming on the surface of his madness. Or maybe it's driven by his madness, but he's up all night pacing and, and scribbling and learning. And he learns about the drowned god. So then he has the ironborn on top of this, whatever, stand, I don't know, somebody he gets a octopus fake octopus and then he's doing all sorts of different crap and he's learning about the Baratheon line and you know what what is the proper what's the proper way to have a fake dire uh, dire wolf's ears go and what color was the beard of Ned Stark and he's getting and you he, he, he see him they bring in this this lion's head, these workers, and he slaps them because it's not big enough. And he wants a bigger, bigger lion head. And uh, you see him working with this woman day after day and grinding out. His mother is worried, and she goes to Tywin. when he says, don't worry. She's nervous about the wedding. He's cooking up something. Probably, like, involves, you know, mice being hurt. But maybe, maybe not. Maybe he's doing something good. 
And then they spy on him, or she has spies, and they say, he's not hurting anything. I mean, he's being mean to some some little people, but I don't, I don't know what they call him there. It's probably something per, per, pejorative, but... And, you know, the, the children, they get replaced by this woman has her troop that she hired. And then Joff's screaming at them. And was, and then they have these team of the top, uh, what do you call them, clothes makers. I don't even know what you call them. And they see Joff and, and the man that's going to play him. And they're getting dressed together. And, the, I mean, this woman has to replicate, the like, the work of the royal tailors for the wedding outfit. She has to copy that. And then, you know, they're trying to, Jaffe is very, very, he's bringing in historians. And he's saying, no, 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 those colors on uh, Ned Stark's chest are all wrong. And uh, I mean, and then people are passing out from exhaustion. They're pouring water. And then the wedding comes and no one, they see this giant in the middle of the night. They're setting up for the wedding and, and Joffrey comes with the Kingsguard at this point. And they bring in this giant. Uh, lion's head and these bands he has like his most sworn closest guards that he pays even under the table so that his brother doesn't know or his father or his uncle whatever you call Jamie and uh, you know they're guarding this thing and no one knows and then the day of the wedding comes and it's such a horribly mean thing that he did but he did accomplish something before he died and probably for him it was time to go I mean it wasn't gonna he's not a fighter he's not a leader he's not a a good king as as will be said later on not a good person even obviously no one wants to be married to him he has uh he derives sexual pleasure from things that aren't in the mainstream or even close and aren't good for anybody so he, he's uh he was doomed I mean as a character uh to a, a, a life um, of a rocky road, we'll say. And, and and he was one of those people that wanted to hurt people all along the way and lash out, I guess, from... seems like always like he was lashing out from, yeah, this situation of impotence and powerlessness and frustration. But he was always... But at this point, this was this shining moment, one shining moment. He reached for the stars the balls tipped da, 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 you know from the NCAAs but um, I mean this was it this was like his I want to say pentultimate but I don't think that even means anything but this was really Joffrey's signature moment in both awfulness but also in follow through has he followed through on anything else Blackwater Bay he didn't do nothing according to what I've heard uh I mean, he's followed through on a few things, but most of them have involved. And, and no one actually, only thing that got hurt here were feelings. So then someone, probably this one of this uh, this milkmaid or whatever, stepmother, whatever we're talking about, was like, oh, no, you're not going to hurt any of these people. It's your wedding. You can't, you can't actually hurt. You can only hurt feelings at weddings, which is like, you know, families getting together. Feelings do get hurt. Not like this in such an aggressive way. But yeah, um, I can't say I'm proud of Joffrey, but I can say like, now that we can, let's get back in that time machine before he sees us. Go back, Bruce Bolton, I rule you, Bruce Bolton, I rule you. Okay, we're back in the uh, present present day 
fictional universe day. So yeah, Joff followed through on something awful and surprised everybody. He saw the looks on the faces. I mean, he definitely, the people he was hurting, he surprised. But also his mother, his brother's a young boy, so he was laughing, but it's just because he's a kid and he doesn't know any better. And then a lot of the subjects, ugh, subjects, you know? Come on. I mean, I guess subjects at a royal wedding, they're not even the, I mean, what are they, like the upper middle class or something? I mean, just laughing. Boot, bootlickers, I think is what they call them. And that's what they are. Um, so, and yeah, so then at the end of the wedding, he eats some bad pie or something, passes out, but he, he died knowing. I don't know that he perpetrated. I mean, they, I guess he trolled his own wedding uh, in some sense. I didn't even think about that till now. But yeah, he kind of trolled his own wedding in, in, in an awful way. So he died knowing that he was at the apex of his meanness. And then maybe, I mean, maybe he was going to find some newfangled way to be mean and, and capitalize on this, like mean theater. But I don't think there was really a future for it. So that was it. And that's it for tonight's episode. Uh, if you're still awake, I'm sorry. This is a Game of Thrones, the boring part of Game of Thrones. And thanks for listening. And have a great night. Thanks.